Titus chapter 1, beginning in verse 7, the word of Almighty God. For a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. For there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not for the sake of of dishonest gain. This is the word of our God. Let's ask his blessing upon it. Our Lord, we do thank you that you speak these things to us that we might know and spot the under shepherds you would have for us so that those under shepherds might guard against false sheep and false shepherds and might spot the wolves. Lord, we pray for the heart, each one of us, to so be in love with your word that we would be on guard against false doctrine. So, Lord, work even in this hour. Bless the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts and instruct us by your spirit, we ask. Amen. David, at a very early age, was a man after God's own heart. We are told that very clearly, aren't we? And yet, throughout his life, he still had great need. Great need of prophets and teachers. Men like Gad and Nathan to come and remind him of gospel wisdom. And when they came, sometimes quite aggressively, to remind him of gospel wisdom, he was humble enough to receive that instruction. We don't hear him saying, do you know who I am? 16 years old, God said I was the man after his own heart. How dare you talk to me this way? No, he was humble enough to receive it. Solomon began his reign by pleasing God, by desiring heavenly wisdom instead of earthly riches. He quickly fell for the earthly riches and fell into that folly and stopped being a student of wisdom, at least for a time. David, when he was coming out of one of these moments of backsliding and sin, declared to us that we ought not to learn the way he had learned, that we needed to be better than that. We need to not be like the stubborn donkey or ass that has to be beaten to learn, but rather that we should be uh, those who learn by study rather than learning by sin. 
It's an important lesson he teaches us in Psalm 32. And I don't think in our generation we believe that. I think we think there's something holier about admitting that you had to learn by sin than having not fallen into the sin because you learned by study. But Solomon had the same thought as his father. He gives us Ecclesiastes as an old man. He presents to us uh, his folly for our study. And at the conclusion of it all, in his dissertation on worldliness, his conclusion is, remember your creator in the days of your youth. Don't wait till I'm, you're like me, old, to remember. You see, both of these men, both of these men would have you know it's better to learn by study than learning by sin. All of us should have a teachable humility like these two men. And we need that teachable humility so that God can do his work through the leaders of today, his elders, rebuking and teaching and correcting and caring for us. Do we have the teachable humility to receive with what the elders give? Well, if we're going to receive what the elders give, they, they have to be qualified to give. And we've been looking at blameless eldership, uh, the qualities that we need to find in a man before he's an elder. And we've talked about blameless a little bit, blameless not in terms of sinless perfection, but as God defines it in Job, the blameless man is one who fears God and shuns evil. And if we think about the, the elder who fears God and shuns evil when he comes into contact with the reality of his own sin and folly, what will he do? Well, if he fears God, he'll fall on his knees. He'll hate the thing God hates, and he'll shun it, he'll turn from it, he'll seek to repent, not just as words, but as life. A blameless elder. We've looked at that in terms of the house, the home, and the character or personality of the man. But today we come to blameless when it comes to doctrine. What does it mean for a man to be qualified to be an elder by being blameless regarding doctrine? I think two years ago, if I'd been asked that question off the cuff, my immediate response would have been to quote from Paul in 1 Timothy, he has to be able to teach. But that's actually a a vastly inadequate answer, isn't it? A lot of people can teach the wrong thing. And I think right here in our text, we're given the description of a a blameless, qualified man with regard to doctrine. It says, holding fast the faithful word as has been taught that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. There, There are three qualifiers for being a blameless man with regard to doctrine in these ver- this verse. There's a past thing, there's a present thing, and then there's a future thing to do. And all of them are equally necessary. And so we can think today that the blameless elder is one who has been taught, is teachable, and therefore is able to teach. So, 
has been taught. He's holding fast what he has been taught. If we want to to realize the the time that's associated with this this phrase has been taught, you know, we could technically say the minute I say amen at the end of the prayer after the after the sermon, well, you've been taught. Now, if you're a non-Christian who all of you are professing Christians here, but if a non-Christian were to step in here today, hear this sermon, and afterwards say, well, I've been taught, right? Is that all Paul means? Someone who at some point has heard the gospel and been taught. Well, we know that's not what he's talking about. It needs to be more than just someone who has heard something and three weeks later is ready to regurgitate it onto the final examination to get his A. And then he never thinks of it again. Like, maybe I'm the only one who did this, but there are a lot of finals I passed, and I've never thought back on anything that was in that final exam. The doctrine ones I have thought back about. But there are other exams that I took, and I've never looked back. I got that stamp that said that I I had passed that science class, and I haven't thought of it since. Is that what it means to be taught and qualified to be an elder? Paul, in uh, the parallel text, in 1 Timothy 3, 6, emphasizes that the man is not to be a novice, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. The condemnation that the devil received, of course, was because of pride. He sought to kick Christ off the throne and make it about himself. And what is his condemnation? Eternal fire. It's a, it's a rather strong warning to anyone who would be an officer in the church. Don't jump into this as a novice. You may incur that judgment showing yourself to have never actually been a real sincere believer in the first place. The power might uh, draw you away before you really had the time for, for the seed to take root in good soil. It sprang up quick. But because it couldn't sink its roots down, the sun burned it up. Or the birds plucked it away. And what a thing for the church if before that even happens, the man is appointed to leadership. What a hard thing that is. Not a novice. I actually, I prefer uh, to novice, which is a good translation, but I prefer what ESV and New American Standard have. They define what novice means here. Not a recent convert. Not a recent convert. Uh, In 1 Timothy 3, by the way, not in Titus. Not a recent convert. There, there's a world of a difference between someone who is fairly young becoming an elder, but in, in terms of his knowledge of Christ, he's 25 years old already, even if he's only 30 years old when he's appointed. I pick 30 because I think I was ordained here at 30 years old. And, or maybe 31 or 30, I don't know. But I think it was at 30, somewhere in there. That's fairly young, isn't it? It's younger than maybe, I don't know how old 
some of our elders were when they were first appointed. But it's fairly young. But what about in terms of walk with God? Well, at least, at least 26 years when I was ordained. Maybe more. But I can remember back 26 years at that point, more than that now, of believing in the Lord Jesus Christ and trusting the gospel. That's a lot of time to grow from novice immaturity to, to more content and depth. And really to prove that this wasn't just something I heard once and liked at the time, but that has stuck. There's a big difference between that and the man who is converted at 25 and an elder at 30. There's a 21-year difference in spiritual growth. Now, now, that's not to say he grew those four or five years at the pace that I did at the age of four. But he's still young in the faith. And I saw this sometimes in seminaries. Not, not just the one I went to. I see this sometimes. Guys are converted 25, 30, 45. And within a year, they've given up their job and they've gone to seminary. And the elders of the churches that don't actually really even know them they've only known them for a year or less, are writing letters of recommendation and sending them off to get this advanced training to be pastors. And I'm not questioning that some of that is wonderful for God's kingdom in the long run. But I've seen quite a few who have dropped away from the faith entirely within a decade. They, They weren't established in the faith before they went off to be given authority. We have to be careful of that. And sometimes it's, it, it's hard for us to be that perceptive. I've seen this a number of times. A man's converted, 25, 30, 45, whatever age he might be, and he's so excited. And if the pastor mentions a book or an author, he buys that book or that author, and he starts reading. That's not a bad thing in and of itself. But within a year, maybe, the elders who don't read as much, maybe, are noticing that there's this young convert, and he's read John Owen. And the one time I read a sentence of John Owen, it made no sense, right? That's, that's how some, of, some elders think that way, godly men, who just don't read John Owen, right? Don't read Jonathan Edwards, or whatever the thing might be. And all of a sudden, the elders are thinking, this man knows more than me. How can can I say he's not qualified to be an elder? He reads more than me. He has a deeper understanding of certain things than me. When really the man is only regurgitating things. And that sounds great as long as he's regurgitating good things. But then he's put into office. I've seen it happen time and again. He's put into office. And he starts getting a little proud. And he stops taking the pastor's recommendation. And he starts reading other stuff he found in a podcast or a blog. And then he starts going down false paths. And by the time the elders are even aware that their fellow elder is teaching false doctrine, one, they feel like he knows more than them anyway. And two, he's been given a platform to teach. If a young convert five years into his Christian life 
doesn't have the platform to teach gives the elders a better chance to correct him and nurture and discipline and disciple him. But if he has that platform, you look around and all of a sudden the church has all this false doctrine in multiple households. Think of, think of Timothy. Timothy held fast to what he had been taught. Where did he learn it? In the seminary of St. Paul, right? That might be what you would think, thinking about what we read in 2 Timothy 3 earlier, where Paul describes all these things that Timothy has done with him. And then he says, You know that from childhood you have known the scriptures, which are able to make you wise. You know. You know where you learned them. Where did he learn them? What is he holding fast to? Well, it's, it's actually not first and foremost Paul. It is that, but it started somewhere else. Timothy, first Timothy, Second uh, Timothy, one five. He learned it from grandma and mom, from his grandmother and his mother, Lois and Eunice, held firm the gospel and they taught young Timothy and he's holding fast to what he had been taught he's not a novice he's held it for decades now however old Timothy was well that's the first thing then the elder needs to be one who has been taught that is not a novice there's been some time between his first hearing the gospel And now, in which we see whether or not he's really holding on to what was taught. Flowing out of that then, secondly, he needs to be one who is teachable. Continues to be teachable, right? I I think sometimes Christian, I think this is more often with Christian men than Christian women. I apologize if that is a... uh, But the women come out ahead on this one. I I see it most with Christian men. A contentment with what they learned 20 years ago. I learned that. Uh, Maybe Jerry did a sermon series on it in 2001. I learned it. And it's good that you're holding fast. It's really good if you're remembering a sermon that was 21 years ago. But holding fast to what you've been taught so that you're able to teach, this in-between point requires that you're continuing to be teachable. You're continuing to grow. You're holding fast to it. You're holding it, maybe we could say, you're holding it tight. You're holding it close. Close where you can examine it up front minutely. The the man to be appointed for elder needs to not just be someone who can say, I confessed Jesus 20 years ago. He needs to be one who is showing that he is still a student in the seminary of Jesus Christ. As you are all called to be students in the seminary of Jesus Christ. 
We haven't arrived. And the Christian that thinks they have arrived, they know quite enough, thank you very much, is not qualified to be a blameless elder. But it's very easy to think that way, isn't it? Life gets busy for one thing. Or maybe we get, get older and it, it's harder to focus on reading. I'm already finding that hard. I hate that because I love reading. I, I have to pace around my office. I'm sure people walk by the windows of our office and think I'm insane. Because I'm walking around reading a book out loud to myself half the day when I'm not on the phone pacing around talking to one of you. Uh, I must look crazy. But, but I have, right? You get older and some things get harder. And you have to work harder at it. A qualified man works harder to make it happen. Someone who is teachable, continuing to be teachable, shunning evil. You know, our, our minds are evil as well. It's not just outward actions that are sin. We have sinful thoughts. And we have sinful beliefs. And God's word corrects us. Do we receive its instruction? Is this person one who is pursuing holiness with regard to his doctrine? Sometimes that's hard to see. Sometimes that's hard to see. I interned at a church. I worked with an elder. I didn't probably, if I'd been foolishly at that young age, trying to assess whether he was trying to continue growing, I probably would have said no. And more and more these days, when I glance at the bookshelf in his study or his guest room, I realize how many things he's read. I realize I was wrong. This is, a, this is an elder who's continuing to study. And that's a good thing. Uh, so it's not always an easy thing for us to see. But we need to be able to assess and search out and consider, is this someone who has a teachable heart? Or is he always the one that's right? It's a good question. I'm always the one that's right. No one else is ever right. Unless they agree with me. Probably not a teachable spirit. And may fall into the sin of pride. Like the devil. Now, um, two things here. One, not all elders read big tomes of systematic theology. And they may still be teachable and growing anyway. And we, we don't need to discount, shouldn't discount, the wonderful age we live in. Because most of the elders I've worked at at this church do less reading and more listening. There are audiobooks. I, I know both Rich and Bill uh, have had the ability in their workplace to listen to podcasts or audiobooks. I don't think Jim can do that as much, but Jim will sometimes be talking about what he and Terry are listening to on the commute and uh, sermons and, and uh, devotional bod- co- podcasts and, and, um, and audiobooks and things like that. There are a lot of ways to be teachable. And this is one of them right here to be teachable. Now I have to work harder to keep being a student because I'm the one standing here. But I, I listen to three other preachers every week. One that I love, one, 
one kind of in more of the celebrity category, whether it's Boyce or Lloyd-Jones or Rick Phillips or someone like that. And then one sermon I've, I've never heard of the preacher. I just go on sermon audio and scroll until I click on something. I know that's a bad way to... But I'm trying to remain teachable, and I don't always learn from every one of those. But trying to remain teachable, right? It's exposing ourselves to be students because the elder is first and foremost a sheep. A sheep in Christ's fold. And only as he is a faithful sheep can he be a useful shepherd. So he needs to remain teachable. Second, you all need to be teachable. Do you remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 what Paul does? He rebukes an entire congregation for being content with the milk of the word. He says, y'all ought to be eating solid foods by now. Can you imagine if Caleb only drank milk still? We have the church potluck and there's Caleb just sipping milk. And there's all this wonderful food out on the tables and all these desserts and all these wonderful... Caleb's just over there in the corner sipping. We'd think something was wrong with him. There's not. He eats fine. But we all need to be discontent with only the milk of the word. Now listen, that's not to say you stop drinking it, right? Paul doesn't say, move on, leave the the basics of the gospel behind. No, you, you get the nutrients of the real gospel from the milk. But you need to also then grow in your depth and understanding and appreciation of the richness of the nutrition God gives us in that gospel. The church today has too many elders that are content with being milk drinkers. And in America, not even milk drinkers. We drink skim milk and we're okay with it. We may even be okay with our pastors just drinking skim milk and passing it out from the pulpit. But what we need in America today, in the church, is leaders, not just pastors, but all leaders, who like their red meat. There's something you get out of red meat that you don't get out of milk. And we need those men who chew into it, and chew and chew. And, you know, who are wise enough to also realize, it's good to have Tums or Rolaids or Mylanta in the cupboard. Sometimes you bite off more than you can chew. It's, it's good to see men in the church who read their Bibles deeply, but know sometimes they're going to feel over their heads and they're going to need that commentary on the shelf. It's a good thing to look for when you're browsing their shelves at home. We all need to be teachable, and we need leaders who exhibit that. The church benefits from that a great deal. Um, I, I think something the church in America would, would grow greatly from is if we were, uh, how to say this without sounding criticizing of my brethren here because I don't mean this that way every church I've served in internships 
and, uh, and just assisting their pastors and showing up at meetings occasionally. Something I've been reflecting on recently is that there are way too many agenda items. And half of them are necessary. Discipleship, teaching, discipline, essential things for the spiritual life of the church. But usually there's at least two or three that no one in the church would ever notice if we never talked about this. And we talk about these things and take up meeting times with that. But the thing that I find sorely lacking in every church I've served in, in elder meetings, is the word and prayer. Isn't that a stunt? Now, in our church, we end all of our elders' meetings with praying around in the group. So it's not that we don't have any of that. I don't think we have enough. Not when, not when the, elder, the apostles themselves, after three years in Christ's seminary, said, guys, we need more time, not for programs, not for discipleship, not even for counseling, not even specifically for sermon prep. They said, we need more time for the word and prayer to be devoted to it. Are our leaders devoted to it? And I think we need to devote ourselves together together to it more and I have to take the fault for seven years on not having done more of that in our elders meetings but at one point one one year we read a book together or studied a book together called the servant leader the shepherd leader I forget shepherd leader and you know that year we visited every single member of the church as elders in groups of two except one person one person I just couldn't coordinate the visit with. That's never been done any other year in the life of this church. It wasn't even a full year for us to do that. It was like 10 months. We were taking time at our elders meetings to commit ourselves to studying the word and this topic of shepherding. It's good for the church. So we'll move on. Able, uh, having been taught, able to... Uh, continuing to be teachable and then finally able to teach which is how Paul puts it in 1st Timothy uh, chapter 3 verse 2 here it's phrased like this the reason why the elder must be able to teach so that he may be able I'm sorry the reason why the elder must be teachable is so that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. Without knowing that I was preaching on Titus, in the past month alone, I've had two fellow pastors chatting with me about struggles, praying together, and somehow in talking about their concerns about things, they mentioned in some format that they fear some of their elders are unable to teach. And I didn't even mention Titus. They just shared this information with me. And our conversations ended with the, the realization that we, we think that this is the most easily written off requirement for eldership in the church today. Ability to teach. But it is a requirement. It's easily written off, I think, in part because of the blessings of technology. 
You don't have to teach a Sunday school class. You can hit a button. You don't have to write a devotional. You can send in a blog that someone else wrote. And there's nothing wrong with either of those two things. Bill and I are about to start Sunday school up. One of us in three, two, two, three weeks is going to push a button. And Bob Godfrey's going to come to our church every Sunday morning and teach us about church history. I mean, that, that is astonishing. Imagine if they'd had that technology when the Puritans and Reformers were around. Astonishing. That's a blessing. But, you know, probably Mia could show up and push the button. It doesn't prove the ability to teach, does it? So, so while it's okay for us to take advantage of these amazing blessings, we need to first assess that the men really are able to teach. Teachable, but also able to teach. Every elder needs to be able to teach. Uh, I mentioned before, uh, elders who, who go down a bad path, right? But all the other elders respect them because the other elders maybe aren't studying as much as they should be. And this guy is. And then this guy, one of two things can happen. This guy's solid, and he notices that the pastor is going off a dangerous path. Or this guy starts going down a dangerous path, and the pastor's waving his arms to the other elders saying, look, this is a problem. But the other elders, they don't even know what to do partially because they're not teachable anymore. They've just gotten used to following. But partially because they aren't capable of teaching. They got put in a position it was unfair to put them in because they don't know how to teach. And then you know what happens in the, the elders' meetings? I have watched this happen. Not at this church but I have watched this happen. It was a popularity contest. If four elders who have day jobs and not a lot of time to study and don't study much and aren't really able to teach are looking at a pastor and an elder who are disagreeing with each other and both saying the other's unbiblical, those who aren't able to teach only have one course to take. Who do I like better? And you know an amazing thing about false teachers? They poke. They calmly poke at orthodoxy. And sometimes the good pastor, the good elder, loses his cool. And if the elders, the other elders, aren't teachable and aren't able to teach, what do they do? They go with the guy that looks like he's keeping his cool. Because obviously that's the more biblical thing. It, it can rip a church apart. It can end a church. No, every elder needs to be teachable. Our churches do not need one theologian pastor and a bunch of yes men. But I think that's the average in the United States of America. One theologian pastor. He's the one whose job is to do this full time. And then a bunch of yes men. We, we need 
elders who are able to teach, every one of them, and are ready to do so for a reason. Why? The text tells us false teachers are coming into households. It actually starts at a very, uh, a very small level. We read it in 2 Timothy 3. First, they find the believer that is already struggling in sin. They're already weak. They're already not walking strong with Christ because they've slidden into sin. And that false teacher, don't miss that point. Because it says gullible women, we all get caught up on the gullible women. What kind of chauvinist is Paul? That's not his point. His point is false teachers target the person who is already stuck in sin. That's where Paul goes with that. Man or woman, irrelevant. Often false teachers try to pull off the, the woman thing. That's more about the man than the woman in that occasion. But the point is that the person's already in sin. And so they're more easily led astray. And then once you have one member of the household, they start propagating your false doctrine over dinner. And you start pulling away this household. Then you start pulling away more households. One day the elders wake up and half the church is in false doctrine. Paul warns of this. And the elders need to be able to bring these people back through exhortation and convicting. Convincing, I'm sorry, convincing. Exhortation means engaging with the text. Elders who are able to open up the word of God, look at it, think about the context, and apply it well. Not just say, well, I think I heard the pastor say once. Oh, this one time I was listening to John Piper say, or, you know, whatever the thing might be. I, I think once my wife commented, it's good to listen to our wives, by the way, and that's okay if they help us work through scripture and devotions together. But the man needs to be able to unpack the scriptures in a teaching situation. And then not just exhort the text, but con- convict. Convict. There needs to be a passion in his teaching. Because he really believes it and is convinced it's true. And this needs to be done not just to the the gullible. Titus here is being told the elder, every elder, should be able to do this against the one who contradicts. Who's the one that contradicts? It's the false teacher. There's a shepherding heart going on in Titus. That a man could be a false teacher in the church and be brought back. Back from the false doctrine. Maybe or maybe not brought back to leadership ever. But brought back from false doctrine. It's so important that these these elders be able to not just have been taught, but to continue being taught and to teach. Well, dearly beloved, let me then ask you, are you teachable? All of you, men, women, children, are you teachable? You're not all called to be teachers. James 3, 1, most of us aren't, and it's a stricter judgment. 
but you're all called to be teachable and zealously teachable, zealous to grow so that, so that you will always be ready to give a defense for your faith when asked. Are you teachable? I, I fear that we're not teachable because of pride often. But being teachable is not a humiliating thing when you understand the gospel. I want you to think about a mystery with me for a moment. This is a mystery, an astonishing mystery, that God, the incarnate Son, Jesus Christ, He humbled Himself, does not mean He gave up His Godhead. He was still fully God. That means He was all-knowing and all-wise. And yet here's the mystery. He sat at the feet of his elders for three days asking questions. Now we know they probably learned far more than they taught. But the posture they found Christ in after three days of searching at the age of 12, when he was 12, the posture was that of student that he might learn. God in the flesh, all-knowing, all-wise, took the posture of humble learning. We can't understand that. But it's an example for us. He didn't rush home after church. He sat and wanted more. Are we teachable? May we be teachable that we might grow for the glory of Christ.